Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lessons My Patients Taught Me. This is Dr. Elliot Davidson, family doctor. In this podcast, we've been talking about lessons I've learned from taking care of patients for the last 36 years. We've been having some conversations with some doctors that I know that I think will be interesting to you listeners. We had a recent podcast where I spoke with my mentor, Dr. Herman Abramowitz, where we discussed lessons from his almost 60 years of practice. This podcast, we're going to go into the opposite end of the spectrum. I know I have a lot of younger listeners, so med students and residents, this podcast is really for you. I've been blessed with four amazing children, each unique and special. Eight years into my practice, I took a special interest in a student that would go on to become one of my most important learners. He started off rather small and cute and has grown into quite a dashing young doctor. I'm speaking about my son, Zachary Davidson, now in his third year of a five-year residency in Minneapolis, trained to be certified in both internal medicine, which is taking care of adults, and emergency medicine. Zach did his undergraduate at The Ohio State University and med school at Mount Sinai in New York City. Zach, it's a great thrill for me to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate you having me on, Dr. Davidson, and the original, and I am excited to talk to you about my experience and swap stories in practice. Yes. Now, you know, you're in an interesting specialty, uh, what we call EMIM, or emergency medicine, internal medicine. What do you like most about emergency medicine? So... I picked a residency that is a little uncommon uh, in emergency and internal medicine. And for me, it really came out of being interested in a lot of things. And originally, I was thinking about doing family medicine. What I like about emergency medicine is a whole breadth of chief complaints presents to the emergency department. So we see kids and adults. We see people across the entire spectrum of life. So I liked that cradle to grave approach where you're taking care of everybody. And what I like about emergency medicine is they say it's like the most exciting 15 minutes of every specialty. So I feel like I can troubleshoot things and see some of these exciting things. And uh, a lot of it is acute, unscheduled medical care. Um, In our country, uh, access to care is, is a challenge for a lot of patients. So We see patients that may have been sitting on a health issue for a while and they come into the ED and they need an assessment and need to be checked out and we're there for them at all times of the day. And to me, it felt a little similar to, you know, the doctor's office, um, just in in a different way. So uh, you could have just been an emergency medicine doctor and you decided to combine it with internal medicine. What do you like most about internal medicine? So when I was talking to one of my advisors in medical school, I was talking to one of the emergency medicine professors that was mentoring a lot of the medical students, and I said, I'm really struggling with my rank list, uh, whether I should rank EMIM programs first or rank emergency medicine programs first. It's really important for me, I said, to have my own clinic and see patients Um, for a certain continuity of time and get to know them and see their problems get better over time. And uh, he recommended that I 
do the EMI and PATH and rank that first because he said in emergency medicine, you will never have a general outpatient clinic. It's just not part of our practice. So that was a big part of it. I wanted to still have my own patients that I felt like um, were seeing me and coming to see me. So, you know, you're not very far from your medical student experience and um, you were I would, I would say, a successful medical student. What advice do you have for the medical student just starting out? Well, first of all, congratulations on getting into medical school. That's kind of the big hoop to jump through originally. And after that, it's kind of just you have to stay on the tracks. If you stay on the tracks and you stay on the train, you are going to be a doctor. And you put in the work. You will graduate. You work on all your clerkships when you get to those, you study the material first and second year. It's a lot of information. The classic metaphor is like drinking from a fire hose. I would say, you know, pace yourself, find the things that help you rejuvenate and de-stress and um, try to find balance in that as best you can and lean on your support system when you have to. But I think really what helped me get through a lot of medical school was uh, being able to talk to you, dad, and, and, and talk to mom and, and uh, friends when I was stressed because there were certainly those times when it just felt like it was too much to figure out, but um, I felt like I had a good support system around me to help me get through it. So very important to have a good support system. There's another thing that comes to mind, and I was given this advice um, about um, med students that are just starting their clinical rotations. I was given this advice about med students that are just starting their clinical rotations, and I thought it was really helpful for me. So in third year, I had the same issue that a lot of med students have, which is like, what specialty do I want to do? And it's really hard to make that decision. So something that really helped me was thinking about how do I like to spend my time in in some specialties, you spend a lot of time with your colleagues, and in some specialties, you spend a lot more time with your patients. So thinking about that and how that divides things up. And then also thinking about how uh, what subjects I find interesting and I want to read about. So um, other specialties, you'll spend time reading about certain conditions compared to others. And then a vascular surgeon uh, told me in medical school, um, Choose the specialty with the scut work that you uh, that you can tolerate the most or that you enjoy. And her her point was, you know, I see a lot of patients with um, with a diabetic foot, and a lot of people complain about how challenging it is to treat diabetic foot. But she really enjoys it. So I think finding specialties where the bread and butter cases you're going to see um, are ones that you actually enjoy. I think can be very um, very helpful. Med students often ask me, how can I feel more a part of the medical team? So in the clinical setting, I think it's really challenging sometimes to know how to get engaged with your medical team as a med student. And some teams are better than others about pulling you into the clinical care. So you gave me this piece of advice, actually, Dad, which is um, find ways to be helpful to your team. So if that means calling a consult or getting a piece of the social history or getting the med list from a patient, if that means getting together some supplies for a procedure. Um, it seems silly, but you know we're, 
you know, people are people and including your attendings and your residents. And if you make their lives easier, um, and I felt this as a med student and a resident, they'll want to involve you more in, in certain things and, uh, you'll get to be pulled into the fun stuff too. Yeah. Read up on the latest article and you'll really impress your attending. So let's shift gears for a minute. Uh, you're three years into a five-year training program. What advice do you have for uh, the doctor starting their residency? So residency is is different than medical school because you're now a practicing physician. You have a trainee license, but you now have a lot more responsibility. I remember the odd feeling that I could tell my plan to my attending and they said, that sounds good. And then I was in charge of clicking sign on all of the orders for the medications and discharging them from the ED or saying, those are the labs that are okay to draw in clinic. And then you can go home and making that call. And it feels like a lot of responsibility at first. So I'd say running things by your attendings, it's okay. You're going to ask a lot of questions. They expect it, especially early on in July. I think as you're just starting residency, finding a system that works for you is helpful. I think for me, there's just so much information and you don't get as much time to sit down and study in residency. So finding a system to organize yourself. For me, I particularly liked Evernote. So I keep notes on all the different subjects on the different things I'm learning, and then I reference them back on shift when I'm in the emergency department or in clinic, and sometimes I'll see some clinical topic that I haven't seen in a month, but I can pull up my notes and say, okay, this is the workup I did last time. I think these pieces of that workup would be appropriate again, and I think that's something that's been helpful for me. You mentioned to me something the other day that struck me, which was the importance of being proactive in your own education. Uh, Talk about that. So I think finding your own deficits as a resident is, is something that is super useful for you. I think no one is going to identify the things that you're not as good at as well as you do. So one of the things, for example, that I recognized is I am not very good at procedures that we don't do that often. So one of those in the emergency department is chest tubes. I uh, really found them challenging because I would be called into the critical care room. I would have the senior resident as an intern or second year say to me, hey, this patient needs a chest tube. And um, there's just so many pieces, getting the kit together, getting all the supplies, setting up. And then all the steps in the moment with the adrenaline, it, it could be easy to forget those things. So I would say finding a way to practice those procedures that are a little more rare or going through information that you don't that doesn't come up as often on your own, um, then you can be ready when something does come up. Well, we all do have room to get better. Uh, one of the professors in the emergency medicine program mentioned this idea of a growth mindset. So realizing that even though you're not good at something, you can continue to grow in that skill and get better at it, and, and um, it can be something that you can become quite good at. It just takes time. So, and I think you told me one of your professors told you you had to be responsible on what that is the thing you wanted to work on that day, uh, and that was also an important concept for you. Yeah, that was in medical school. I was on my pediatrics clerkship, and 
my pediatrics professor, she she was talking to me about the things that were going on in clinic that day, and she said, hey, Zach, so what would you like to learn today? And I kind of gave a very, what I think is a typical medical student answer for myself at the time, which was, I don't know, whatever comes up, I'm excited to learn what anything and everything. And she looked at me very seriously and said, you'll have to identify your own learning goals. And it kind of struck me, and I realized she's right. And I think when I go into days in clinic and in the ED and I tell my my attendings and the people I'm working with the different things I'm working on, they are able to give me very specific direct coaching, and I think it makes it easier for them because they know the areas that I'm trying to work on. So I might have a day where I'm in clinic and I'm trying to do a long-term uh, cardiac workup on a patient, and um, I have my own ideas, but I, I want to refine them just a little more, and I say, can you tell me a little bit about your approach to this patient with AFib, um, how you would how you would recommend I, you know, I think about these medications and my uh, attending will, you know, give me some advice on that specifically. So I, th- I find that super helpful. Thanks. I want to talk about another concept we often hear about, which we refer to as work-life balance. It can be a real challenge these days for learners balancing uh, training and real life, uh, finding that, that balance. Uh, and I think that's very important to wellness, which is an important topic uh, for residents, for attendings, and for our uh, accrediting body. So h- how do you go about maintaining a good balance? I think one of the things that's helpful is just to recognize it's not balanced. It, at the very start, you know, you're going to be working really hard, and you need to look for ways and opportunities to create balance. So sometimes there's a special event coming up, like a friend of mine has a wedding, you know, sometime later this year, and I'm working with my co-residents to change our schedules around. So I'll cover a shift for them if they cover me at that wedding. So I think that's something I didn't realize early on in residency, just talking with my co-residents and switching schedules. I think we can all get to stuff that we want to be at um, and uh, make it to those important events. And that helps with burnout, just feeling like you're not missing out. I think other things that help with balancing is being very being very serious about your sleep. Uh, sleep is is challenging to get enough hours, but protecting it as much as you can because that's the rest of your day if you're not getting enough hours of sleep. And um, whenever you have time during the week trying to make time to exercise, there's a resident gym. So on busy blocks, I don't always make it, but trying to make it um, when I have the free time. Yes, exercise is very important. Here's another idea that I found helpful. Do today's work today. Because if you let it build up and tomorrow you have today's work and tomorrow's work to do, then it, you start to feel behind the eight ball, and pretty soon it becomes overwhelming. So if you do today's work today and you do tomorrow's work tomorrow, then you never get behind. So I think that's very helpful. Oh, my gosh. I, that really resonates. I, you'll see so many patients during the day, and there's a very high burden of documentation that you're going to feel. And just trying to get through all those notes on your patients by the end of the day, if possible, that's been a big weight off my shoulders 
it, I recognize it's not always possible in all situations to do it the same day, but prioritizing that and not letting that build up because those uh, those charts and that weight of documentation can weigh on you if you don't you, you don't keep up with it. I want to mention that we had uh, some feedback from a listener named Phil who asked about how to avoid compassion fatigue. He's a provider, and uh, this is a hot topic in medical circles now, especially in in the light of the pandemic. Uh, people are concerned about compassion fatigue. First of all, have you heard of that, and and what can we do about that? I had a co-resident of mine who is one of the fifth years in the EMI program say something that really struck me about this. We were talking about burnout, and she said, do you look for moments to find grace with your patients? And what she meant by that was finding little things to connect on with your patients and enjoying little moments with them. So if your patient tells a joke, you know, finding the time to just like appreciate it and appreciate the the moment together, to be really honest with your patients. Um, if there is a situation that's frustrating and you feel frustrated, you could say this feels frustrating, and then they they will say I'm frustrated too, and just kind of aligning aligning in that way. Sometimes I will talk about movies I've seen recently with my patients. I will write down things my patients recommend and I'll read them and and check them out. And I find that it helps me engage more. Um, And also they have really good recommendations and I don't get out much. So it's helpful. I think that's very true. And I try to connect with patients on something. And typically it doesn't matter who they are, I can find a way to connect with uh, just about everybody, whether uh, it's over football, over uh, the fact that we have grandchildren, the fact that they have a garden, um, the fact that um, they're losing their hair like I am, um, or um, you know, some kind of uh, way to connect, uh, uh, some commonality that we can relate to. And uh, oftentimes I will jot something down in my medical record, now they're going to Hawaii, then I can ask them about how their trip was, they're having a wedding coming up with the family, I can ask them how that went. And so uh, they, uh, you increase your credibility with the patient, you increase your connection with them uh, when you're interested in them as a person and when you follow through with that uh, the next time you see them. Uh, they say, oh, the doctor cares about me, he cares about my life beyond you know, just the medical conditions that I have. I, I had a four-year-old girl recently I saw on the pediatrics rotation, and uh, she said to me, she was, she was just this really cute little, little girl, and I asked her, what's your favorite color? And she told me, my fa- I have two. And I said, oh, what are your two favorite colors? And she said, teal and rose gold, which are really not even in my own color vocabulary. So I put that under the social history because I thought it was awesome. I just think recognizing those moments when they come up and appreciating the humanity in them just helps preserve my own compassion. Right. So uh, in terms of compassion fatigue, the other things that I, I think that you can do is just you know pay attention to your own uh, self, your own body, uh, your own uh, signals so that you get the proper rest that you need, that you uh, get the exercise, that you're eating right, that you're communicating with your friends, your co-workers, because oftentimes uh, we pass each other in the hall and uh, 
there, it's we're all kind of focused on our own activities and on our own stresses. And if we could just say a word or a smile, that can go a long way toward uh, relieving the tension that, that we might be feeling. So uh, I think in very small ways, we listen to ourselves, we listen to our colleagues, uh, we can help each other through this. I agree. I, this year and the past year and a half, two years have been really hard for everyone in healthcare. And I think recognizing that and compassion fatigue is not just something that comes up that is that is uh, could be improved. Just just recognizing that it's inevitable, and we're all going to get there. And um, I I think by recognizing that it's something inevitably I'm going to feel, and just finding checks for myself, I think that's been helpful. And I think th- I think you told me that same advice, Dad, and and that's been something that I've been trying to do is just take inventory of my own thoughts and feelings and be aware of my environment a little better, which I don't always do. The other thing is, you know, with COVID, it's putting a lot of stress on the medical system. And we get frustrated when there are some people who could take measures like vaccinate themselves, and they don't, and then they get sick. And that is tempting for us to treat them differently. But I think back to the times that I've taken care of people who for instance, smoke their whole lives, and then they get lung cancer, and we've been trying for years to get them to quit smoking, we don't treat them differently. And it's not that different uh, in terms of, uh, you know, not taking the steps to prevent uh, a condition that uh, they could have prevented. So uh, I know that uh, some providers feel uh, some sense of um, frustration about that, but this kind of thing where people are not following your advice significantly has been with us forever. And this situation with COVID not taking the vaccine is just another example of that. Uh, So uh, I encourage people to maintain their compassion, to uh, just see this other person. You don't know what's going on with them. You don't know all the different factors that are going on uh, with that decision. And I know they um, can... um, be kind of befuddling sometimes as to why they aren't taking the steps to protect themselves, but uh, they still are human beings and they still uh, deserve our full attention and our full care. That's a great point. Uh, I'm still in the early stages of accepting pleasant noncompliance. Well, Zach, this has been a great uh, time spending together. I've learned a lot uh, from you uh, during this time, and uh, I'm really uh, excited to see where your career goes next. So I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. Great, Dad. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you, too, and uh, thanks for including me and, and having me on as a guest for your podcast. And that reminds me, uh, I have a couple patients uh, that I wanted to run by you real quick. I was wondering if you had a, a few minutes. Sure. Lay it on me, Zach. Okay. This has been another edition of Lessons My Patients Taught Me. I want to thank my special guest, Dr. Zachary Davidson. And I want to mention a new feature. Those of you who want to engage more with me on this podcast can go to the Anchor app and answer the question, what are some ways that you found to balance your work with the rest of your life? In addition, our poll question this podcast is, How often do you experience compassion fatigue? I'd be very interested in hearing how often this is coming up in your experience. As always, I'd love to get your feedback either on the Anchor app through a voice message 
on Facebook, on Twitter at LDavidson1. Or if you see me, tell me what you think and give me your ideas. So until the next podcast, stay healthy. Stay healthy.